the morning is found in John chapter 13, reading verses 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we approach you and we ask for your help. Lead us in your truth and teach us. We confess that in us there is only poverty, but in your son there are riches. In us there is darkness, but in him there is light. In us there is only error but in him is truth. And so take us to him today by your spirit. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a junior in high school, I found myself in deep trouble. My studies were going fairly well except for one course, pre-calculus or what used to be called trigonometry. Math was never my thing. I was a words guy, and so I enjoyed literature and history. But I always managed to do well enough. I got by. However, that was no longer the case. just simply wasn't working. As the second semester began, I was in free fall, plummeting towards failure, unprecedented. Concepts were building on concepts, and I understood very little of what Mrs. Purcell was trying to explain. It was not good. I had never felt so out of control, not good at all. And despite having one semester behind me in which I'd been fairly successful and a math career behind me in which I'd done okay, I was completely struggling to understand the system. It felt like a foreign language. I was confused and I was completely confounded. I was lost and I was longing for the year mercifully to come to an end and just to land with a B. In John 13, Jesus' disciples were somewhat in the same place when it came to him, they were confused and they were confounded. They were lost. 
and longing for some real clarity. They've been with Jesus for three years at this point as he traveled through Israel. Traveling through Israel, he had manifested the glory of God both in his words and in his deeds. But now he was introducing some very befuddling material. Things not easily comprehended. He was telling them that he was going to depart their company immediately. There was something that was upon them now. He was explaining that he would die a shameful death violently. He explained that he would be absent indefinitely. To top it off, as he speaks about these things, about departing their company, suffering a shameful death, being absent from them, he continues to use one term, a particularly loaded biblical term, is the word glorified. This, of course, was the last word in the first century that anyone would associate with death by crucifixion at the hands of the Roman authorities. To be crucified was a public act of degradation and humiliation. This is what it was designed to do, not glorification. And so his disciples were not tracking. They weren't getting it. They were operating with bad categories. They were operating with some misplaced expectations. And they were operating with some warped values. They weren't comprehending what was happening, plummeting towards failure. And so Jesus, from John 13 to John 17, pulls away with his disciples. He's going to coach them about his departure for what it will look like after his violent death and after his return to God to be at the right hand. He's preparing them to follow him in his absence. But of course, he's not simply speaking to disciples, a group of 12 then and there, but he's also speaking to disciples here and now. And he teaches us what it looks like to follow him in his absence, to have a Lord that we believe in and yet do not see. And so this morning, as we read these verses, it's critical for us to ask and to answer a very simple question. What does exactly Jesus do for us to prepare us for his absence, to serve a Lord who we don't see? And there's three things going on here in these seven verses from 31 to 38 that will follow ahead of our celebration of the Lord's table. And first, what we find is that Jesus reiterates his mission. This is what he does for us as he prepares us to follow him, an absent Lord. He knows the confusion of the disciples. And Jesus, once again, though, explains his mission. His mission is simply the purpose of the Father in sending the Son into the world. And this is what Jesus is going to reiterate. He provides a very dense summary of that purpose or of that mission in verses 31 and 32, playing off of this term glorified that he uses five times inside of these two verses. 
And so Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Those two short verses can feel like a maze, and so let's break them down into three parts as Jesus summarizes what his entire purpose and mission in coming into the world is. He begins by saying, now is the Son of Man glorified. In the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel or in the book of Isaiah, the prophesied glorification of the Son of Man or the branch of righteousness is a public exaltation, a moment of divine self-revelation, a glorious thing. But paradoxically, Jesus connects this idea from the Old Testament of glorification, of a public exaltation, of a moment of divine self-revelation and disclosure to the world. He connects it with this moment of shame known as the cross. So you ask why? Why does Jesus view the cross as a glorious moment of divine self-disclosure, of God's exaltation before the nations of the earth? To answer the question, reading Calvin's commentary on the Gospel of John, Listen to his stunning answer, just absolutely brilliant. For in the cross of Jesus, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross in which there was a wonderful change of things. The condemnation of all men was manifested, sin blotted out, salvation restored to men. In short, the whole world was renewed and all things restored to order. And do you hear the answer? Why does Jesus bring together what we can hardly keep In one place, this idea of glory and shame and humiliation, the cross being a moment of exaltation. Why? Calvin's answer is helpful. It's the goodness of God on display. As if a splendid theater, that there the condemnation of man was manifested. Our sins condemned as Jesus hung upon the cross. But the righteousness and the goodness of God also manifested as Jesus suffers on our behalf, that sins were blotted out, that salvation comes, that the whole world was actually renewed in this moment as Jesus reconciles all things to God. And so this is why Jesus speaks of his hour and of this moment as a moment of glorification because it is the goodness of God displayed for the world. But he moves on to a second phrase. Not only that the Son of Man has been glorified, but he then explains that God is glorified in him. That is to say that Jesus glorifies the Father by obediently fulfilling his will. He's the righteous servant, and he is the righteous servant without sin. 
who willingly gives himself to display the glory of God in all of his grace, in all of his goodness. And so Jesus glorifies the Father. The Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son. And this is where Jesus takes the next step. That yes, the Son of Man has come and he has been glorified, exalted on a cross, but he only does that after being the obedient Son who glorified the Father. And now we find the third and final phrase that Jesus speaks here. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Many people read that and say, what exactly am I supposed to do with it? It just seems like circular logic. But for God to glorify Jesus in himself is really a simple thing. It is for Jesus to be glorified in the presence of the Father with the glory that he had before the world began. It's what Jesus shared with the Father from all eternity. But Jesus laid aside that glory, that glory that was eternally his as the beloved son in whom the Father delighted. He took on flesh and he took on a shameful death. He was glorified on the earth, hoisted and exalted on a cross. He glorified the Father in his righteous life and in his willingness to go to the cross. And then he returns to the Father where he is glorified once again. Friends, this is what Jesus does in a very condensed and compressed verse that can be hard to read. He's summarizing his purpose and his mission, why he comes into the world. Glory laid aside, glory revealed in obedience, glory revealed in his death, and then glory resumed in the presence of the Father. And Jesus reiterates this again and again for the disciples because he wants us to understand that nothing has gone wrong, that these events, these objective events, these historical events that these events are the very basis of our salvation. That we're not simply looking at a math formula about how to get into heaven, but rather what we have is a person. Our Lord Jesus Christ taking on flesh, laying aside his glory, glorifying the Father in his life, offering himself in our place and returning to glory. And that friends, it is by believing in this one and sharing in him that we enter into the life of salvation and have eternal life. And so Jesus reiterates this over and over, and it's what he does for us as the church today. But second, we also see that Jesus renews our mission. In verses 34 and 35, he changes subject. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Jesus renews our mission by issuing this new commandment. Now, on one hand, the commandment is not new. 
It repeats ethics thoroughly embedded in the Mosaic law concerning the love of neighbor. On the other hand, the commandment is new in that it builds on a new standard that we are to love as we have been loved by Jesus. It's the new foundation for love that is new in this commandment. Our love is given a a living example in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this is now the mission of the church, that the community, the people who believe in him, his disciples, are to give themselves freely to one another in this type of love. Now, it is helpful to recognize that this love manifested by Jesus on the cross for sinners is ultimately a manifestation of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. Throughout the Gospel of John, we find the Father delighting in the beloved Son. And we find the Son, the beloved Son, delighting in the will of the Father and doing and completing it. A perfect communion of love in which the Father sends the Son to the world. And the Son obediently responds and gives himself in sacrifice for the world. And so, friends, when we listen to our Lord Jesus and when we hear his command to love one another as we have been loved by him, this marks us out as Jesus' disciples. It proclaims the true God to the watching world. It puts the reality of God in his eternal existence on display before the world. But, of course, we also feel the height of the demand of this. As a young minister in Memphis, Tennessee at Second Presbyterian Church, I worked with young adults there and had several young single women and young single men in this group and community. And of course, there were moments of great togetherness and communion and building up one another. And then we would have tragic moments where we would have a catastrophe and someone would start dating and things would fall apart and it was awful. But there was one particular young lady who was uniquely idealistic. And so she brought her ideals to this small community of young adults that we were rebuilding. And there was a lot of criticism that came with that. The church was not this, the church was not that. The church needed to do this, the church needed to do that. If we only did this. A lot of criticism that came with it. And of course, when you would read something like this new commandment, there would be reflections from her about just the inadequacies of the church and how we just didn't really live this out. Then one day we were speaking with one another. She was a woman who'd suffered a great deal. An early marriage out of college had fallen apart. Parents who barely spoke with one another. It was all extraordinarily sad. And she was sharing about a broken relationship with another woman in the group. And there were some things that had happened that were hurtful and offensive. And I simply asked whether she had lovingly gone to this other lady and shared what was going wrong. And she said, well, no, of course not. I wouldn't have that conversation. 
And friends, this is the challenge. It's easy for us to hear Jesus' command, and it's easy for us to look out and to think of all the ways that the church comes up short of it. But the challenge for us and the mission that Jesus gives to us, the purpose that he assigns to his church is that we live this out and that we work and pursue it, even when it's going to cost us something, even when it's extremely difficult. And so we need to ask ourselves the practical question. How do we grow in love for those around us? Especially when they have all their warts and they have all their weaknesses. And when all those warts and all those weaknesses meet our own warts and our own weaknesses. And in basing the commandment on his love for us, we uncover a particular dynamic that answers that question. And the dynamic begins by recognizing the depth of our own sin. Yes, if you want to learn to love your neighbor, the place that you have to begin is not by looking at your neighbor's faults. If you want to learn to love your neighbor, the place that we have to begin is in the depth of our own sin. Because the more that we recognize the depth of our own faults and the depth of our own failures, our sins against God and our sins against our neighbor, this then is where we learn the depth of Jesus' love for us. And friends, it is in that encounter, in understanding the depth of Jesus' love for us, when we see the heights of that and how great it is, that for Jesus to love someone as undeserving and as unloving as ourselves, it's there that the standard of love we are to live by becomes higher and higher. We see just how great that standard is. And as that standard then grows higher and higher, it's more then that we see the depth of our sin. It goes lower and lower. Our narrowness, our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness becomes more and more on display. And friends, this sends us back to the love of God expressed in the cross. We gain a deeper appreciation and sight of it. And it's only as we focus upon that love and our great need for it that God begins to displace the narrowness and the selfishness and the ugliness that lives within us. It simultaneously convicts us and it compels us forward and draws us out of ourselves. And so, friends, the cross, the love of Jesus for us is the foundation. It becomes the motivation and it is the stimulation of our life with one another as we learn to love each other as Jesus has loved us. And so to prepare us for his absence... Jesus gives us this ethic, this mission, that we are to love one another as he loves us. But finally, we also see that Jesus confronts us with our crisis. If you follow in verses 36 through 38, Jesus has a conversation with Simon Peter. 
Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And so Peter returns. He was not interested in the love commandment. He returns to something that had grabbed his attention where Jesus said he was going to leave and the disciples couldn't follow. Jesus then tells Peter that he cannot come yet, that that time is not now. And then Peter protests that and says, I will lay down my life for you. And friends, this is where it's critical for us to reflect. We're not given these stories about Peter and the other disciples just so we can look at them and think how hard-headed and short-sighted they were. But rather, we're given these accounts of Peter's short-sightedness, of Peter not getting it, of the other disciples joining along because they're given to us as a mirror. And here what we see is that Peter's intentions and his self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. Peter has no self-awareness. And this is the crisis for Jesus' disciples. We work from a faulty self-assessment, assuming strength where there really is nothing but weakness. Peter desperately needed a more sober analysis of himself, and this is what Jesus provides. He reminds him and tells him that he will deny him three times. Peter probably could never have believed it. But friends, one thing that we have to be convinced of, Jesus is not fooled by us. We may be able to pull a charade on many other people, but he's not fooled by us. He sees and knows what is in us. He sees and knows who we are. Early on in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, in verses 24 and 25, John says this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, speaking of the crowds, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Our Lord Jesus knows what's in us. He knew what was in Peter he knew that behind Peter's confidence and alleged strength in this boast that I will die for you, he knew there was nothing but weakness and bluster. And this is where it's critical for us to recognize what Jesus wants. He wants us to own that weakness within us. But he doesn't want us to own that weakness in us so that we can get over it and become strong. That's not the point of owning weakness. But what he wants us to do is own that weakness within us that we can call upon him in the midst of weakness to find strength. We don't get over weakness. We find strength in him in our hour of need. And this is the crisis that Jesus is confronting in the disciples. 
He confronts it in Peter then and there, and he confronts it in us here and now as he's absent from us. That we draw our strength from him. We don't find it in ourselves. We don't have the resources for this. And so, friends, as I floundered in precalculus, my mom recognized the reason behind my struggling. I was missing some fundamental concepts. Fundamental. So she hired a tutor. First time I'd ever had a math tutor. A retired mathematics professor from the university. He sat down with me and over several months went back and began to build a foundation that would help me understand trigonometry. And for the first time ever, that foreign language that had completely confused me began to make some sense, some (laughs) sense. It clicked. And friends, this is what Jesus is doing for the church. He's sitting down with us in an individual session, almost in a graduate school-like setting to teach us what it is for him to be absent and yet to be a reigning Lord. And he reiterates for us what his mission, his purpose from the Father is, what we can expect from him and what he has done for us. He renews us in our mission, issuing to us this new commandment that he's come to impress. And he comes and also confronts us in our crisis, always reminding us of the weakness that dwells within us and where true strength is found. And so in all of our incomprehension, in all of the ways that we find ourselves weak, in all of the ways that Jesus just baffles us, he invites us to come to him. And this morning, let's come and let's listen and let's allow him to lead us and guide us. Let's pray. Father, this morning we recognize all the ways in which we struggle to understand your son, his work in the world, all the ways that we come up short of what he commands but yet all the ways that you provide in him every resource we need. And so in weakness, may we there find strength. Help us in our time of need. Be with us in all things. And you have commanded us in your word to trust you at all times, pouring out our hearts before you, because you are a refuge for us. And so in obedience to this command, we gather to make our common supplications, recognizing that you are always more ready to hear us than we are to pray, and that you are always ready to give more than either we desire and more than we deserve. And so let's join our hearts this morning together in silent prayer for the following concerns. Let's ask God to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory, drawing men and women from every tribe and tongue of the nations to himself through the preaching of the gospel. Let's especially pray for our mission partner, First Coast Women's Services, as they minister to men and women throughout our city facing unplanned pregnancies. 
Ask God to protect staff and volunteers and to transform hearts as the gospel is shared in ministry. Let's pray for all who are in authority, especially for our governor, Ron DeSantis, and also for our state legislature. Ask God to give them wisdom to govern well, promoting what is good and what is right and what is true in our state. And let's pray for those who suffer and mourn today, asking the God of all comfort to show his compassion. Let's especially remember Barb Day facing resurgent cancer, Sue Forsythe enduring back pain, Elizabeth Garnett living with stage four brain cancer, Gar Garganius also living with cancer, Jim Tyson recovering from back surgery, Bill Yates suffering from Parkinson's disease, and Wayne Noble. Let's pray for the children and youth of Christ Church, asking that God will teach them of his mighty deeds and the wonders that he has done in Jesus Christ. Ask God to prepare them to be the next generation of the church who will keep his covenant and walk in his ways. Let's close this morning saying the prayer our Savior has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.